You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. One thing that is common across true crime stories, especially those that have to do with missing people, is that there are often complaints about how the police take charge of a case and even how they treat people reporting their loved one as missing. It is a sad reality, as we have covered here on the podcast, that certain things like race, class, and gender can make a difference on how a missing person's case is looked at and how much manpower is put into the investigation. This week, we're going to talk about a case that showed the alleged ineptitude of the police when an adult male was reported missing, and the way that the family stepped up in a big way to push for legislative changes so that other families would not have to go through what they had already been put through. Hello, my name is Lance, and welcome to episode 104 of Gone But Never Forgotten. Brandon's Law, The Disappearance of Brandon Swanson. Brandon Swanson was born on January 30th of 1989 in Marshall, Minnesota, to his parents Annette and Brian Swanson. Brandon was a 19-year-old male and a college student at Minnesota West Community and Technical College, where he was taking a wind turbine program and taking his classes in Canby, Minnesota. On May 13th of 2008, Brandon was out with friends and celebrating the end of their spring semester, and Brandon was having the night of his life. Brandon would attend two different parties, the first in Lind, Minnesota, and the second in Canby, Minnesota. Friends of his would report that he had been drinking that night, but that he did not look or act visibly intoxicated when he was leaving to head home to Marshall. He left the party in Canby with the familiar 35-mile drive home ahead of him just before midnight, and for some reason, likely because he had been drinking, he chose to take the side roads home rather than get onto the interstate. Along his drive, however, he had driven his Chevrolet Lumina off the road and into a ditch. Brandon would call his parents and tell them of the predicament that he was in, saying that there wasn't any damage to the car and he was fine, but that he was unable to get the car out of the ditch. 
as any parents would, Annette and Brian got into their pickup truck and stayed on the phone with Brandon as they tried to figure out exactly where he was. He told his parents that he believed that he was near the city of Lind, and he said that he saw lights off in the distance that he believed was the small town. So, his parents set out to try and locate him. Both Brandon and Annette and Brian agreed to flash their lights if they saw any other vehicles so that they would know that they had spotted one another. After quite some time passed, everyone was starting to get frustrated because Annette and Brian were unable to locate Brandon, and finally Brandon said that he was going to start walking towards the lights in the town that he believed was just off in the distance. He told his father to meet him at a particular parking spot in Lind, and they would meet up there because it seemed easier than the search that was not proving to be fruitful. As he walked, Brandon stayed on the phone with his parents. The calls did drop from time to time because of spotty cell reception, but Annette and Brian continued to call back and stay on the line as best they could. However, approximately 45 minutes into the call, Annette and Brian would hear Brandon say, Oh shit, and then there was silence on the other end of the line. Annette and Brian stayed on the line for a short time and then hung up and tried to call Brandon back multiple times, but those calls were to no avail. That would be the last time that Brandon was ever heard from, now just over 25 years ago. Brian and Annette would waste no time in getting to local law enforcement at this point. Once they determined that Brandon was not going to make it to the place that they had agreed to meet, they decided that they needed to report him as missing, especially after the expletive that they had heard come out of his mouth. So, at 6.30 a.m., they reported Brandon as missing. However, as I alluded to off the top, the police didn't seem to take too much concern with what Brian and Annette were saying. Officers allegedly told them that it was far from unusual for 19-year-old men to be out late and partying after the end of a school semester. Even though Brian and Annette explained everything to the police, they simply took the stance that everything would be fine. One officer even allegedly said that Brandon had the right to be missing since he was finished that second semester. And so, frustrated beyond belief, the family started to search for Brandon, at first on their own. Finally, later that morning, the Lind Police Department did join in the search. The problem was that the search was largely taking place in the area that Brandon thought that he had driven his car off the road. Nobody knew exactly where he had been, and nobody could locate the car, much less Brandon. The Lyon County Sheriff's Office realized that searching aimlessly as they were was going to prove fruitless and instead they obtained Brandon's cell phone records with hopes that the information would narrow down the search area that they would be looking for Brandon within. Those records revealed that Brandon had not been where he believed that he was. In fact, it wasn't even close. He had in fact been speaking with his parents from the vicinity of Taunton, 
along Highway 68. Brandon had been 25 miles, or 40 kilometers, away from Lind, Minnesota. With that new information, the search efforts were of course moved to that area of the state, and Brandon's car was found not too long afterwards. The car was in a ditch that was off a gravel road along the Lincoln County line. That meant that yet another sheriff, the sheriff of Lincoln County, would also join the investigation. He would let the media know that Brandon had run his Lumina along the top of an incline at the edge of the road, and that even though there was not any serious damage to the vehicle whatsoever, because of the way that the car had stopped and rested, the wheels were not touching the ground, and that was why Brandon was not able to get the car back on the road. One of the first things that investigators noticed was that because of the underbrush and the grass in the area, there was absolutely no tracks left behind to show which way Brandon had headed when he finally made the decision to leave the vehicle behind to hopefully meet up with his parents. Investigators also noticed that from not too far from where the car was left, you could see the Taunton, Minnesota grain elevator. The grain elevator had a light atop it, and it was believed that from far in the distance, that was what Brandon may have thought those lights were when he thought he saw the lights of Lind, Minnesota. There were ground searches, there were air searches, there were search dogs, and there were members of the community now joining in the search to try and locate Brandon or, at the very least, evidence of where Brandon had gone after the lion went dead with his parents. The search dogs came across Brandon's scent and carried that for roughly three miles along dirt roads until Brandon's scent met up with the Yellow Medicine River. Investigators said that the dogs came to the bank of the river, and it appeared that Brandon's scent, in fact, had gone into the stream. As such, a water search would also commence, searching for any evidence that Brandon was around or that he had been there. Unfortunately, though, nothing more was seemingly left to be found. Eventually, the search parties dwindled down, and the sheriff walked to the stream every day for a month looking for changes, but found none. The water in the area had been as deep as 10 feet in some places on the day that Brandon had gone missing, so there was certainly great power and many questions to be answered. Unfortunately, though, those questions still have not been answered to this very day. In 2010, with no answers seemingly in sight, the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension would take over as the lead agency in the disappearance of Brandon Swanson, and they set up a dedicated tip line for the case. That tip line has now garnered over 100 tips in the time that it's been active, but sadly none of those tips have gotten anyone any closer to bringing Brandon home or bringing closure to the case. It was believed widely that Brandon had either succumbed to foul play or an accident of some kind. As you can imagine, as search efforts wound down, Annette was beside herself at the initial reaction when she reported Brandon as missing. 
She could not believe that the police would disregard a person going missing, much less a person going missing under the circumstances that Brandon did, essentially while conversing with his parents. The belief was clear that if Brandon had wanted to disappear, he could have done so with a whole lot less effort than he had put in. Annette and Brian stood up against the system to make changes so that others would hopefully not have to run into the same circumstances that they had. Knowing that it would help nothing in the disappearance of their own son, though, they began to lobby for changes to the state laws so that it would be required for law enforcement to do investigation into a case of a missing adult as soon as it was reported much like is done when children are at the center of missing person cases. Their work paid off, and they would have a bill introduced that was called Brandon's Law. The law would change the wording in Minnesota so that the state's missing child program would change the word child to the word person, and thus create the expectation that investigations would take place in the case of a possibly abducted person immediately, regardless of their age. Brandon's law was passed into state law in May of 2009. On May 14th of 2008, Brandon Victor Swanson went missing. At the time of his disappearance, he was 19 years old, and he was approximately 5 foot 6 and 120 pounds. He had brown hair and blue eyes. Brandon had piercings in his right and left ears. He was last seen wearing blue jeans and a t-shirt. If you know anything about the disappearance of Brandon Swanson, please contact your local FBI office or submit an anonymous tip with Crime Stoppers. In 2023, there was a brief update in this case to state that there was still tips that were coming in in 2023. The sheriff's office stated that there had now been new tips that Brandon had got into an argument with someone on the night that he was last seen. None of those tips, though, as of press time, however, have come to bring any closure within the case. Aside from the car that was located, there has never even been one piece of physical evidence within this case. Brandon, his keys, his cell phone, his clothes, and everything else that he had with him were never recovered. What a, what a crazy case. You may be wondering why changes needed to be made to laws for situations like this, and why there was even people standing against these changes that were brought on by Brandon's Law. In 2009, we were just on the precipice of technology in terms of phones and such, and it's believed that there are privacy issues with the changes to the law because it does give the police the ability to track things like cell phone activity in the cases of adults. Someone may in fact choose to try to leave their life behind and police are now able to track them down a heck of a lot easier. So that is in fact controversial to many. One thing that I do know though is that even if police locate a missing adult, they do not need to return that person to anyone. 
As such, the person could explain away their disappearance. I think in cases like that, it is still better for the family to hear that their loved one is okay, but does not want contact. I can't imagine that that would be worse than just having to live the rest of your life with a complete and utter unknown as to what happened. So, that's where I sit with this. As we always say, it's better to be safe than sorry. In closing, I want to welcome all of the new listeners to the podcast as I have seen some wonderful new numbers. Thank you for spending time with me each and every week and thank you for being a goner. If you would like to support the show, please follow the pod, rate the pod, and tag the pod anywhere and everywhere so that more people can find our little corner of the internet. That helps the podcast more than you could ever know. If you would like to help further, you can support the con- the podcast financially through Patreon or by doing one-time donations through PayPal at gbnfpod at gmail.com. This podcast is indeed a labor of love, but every little bit certainly helps, and everything I pour into the podcast obviously costs. Also, don't forget to follow along on social media and chime in with your thoughts, your opinions, and your beliefs. I'll leave it there for this week and look forward to sharing a new case with you next week. In the time between, please remember to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. And most of all, remember to just be better. Thank you so much for listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. I'll see you next week.